Hello, I'm Lynn Weeks, and today we will be talking about safely managing patients with chronic pain in primary care, and in particular, the complexity of treating pain in people with coexisting mental health conditions. We know that people with a mental health disorder and pain are at higher risk of harm from opioid analgesics. And for example, here in Victoria, 75% of people who die from an opioid overdose have a mental health condition. Joining me today to discuss this critically important topic and how these patients can be safely and effectively managed in primary care are Yvonne Bonomo, an addiction medicine specialist at the St Vincent's Hospital, Malcolm Hogg, a pain specialist from the Royal Melbourne, and Fergal Armstrong, a GP practising about 70 kilometres from the Melbourne CBD. Both chronic pain and mental health conditions are commonly seen in general practice and frequently in the same patient. Indeed, there's research showing a bi-directional relationship between chronic pain and mental health disorders. Malcolm, can you talk to us about this neurophysiological relationship between pain and mental health conditions and why it's important, how it can guide management? So we see from the statistics that people who develop acute pain are more likely to develop chronic pain if they have pre-existing anxiety or depression. So it's a risk factor for developing chronic pain. In those that do develop chronic pain, there's a higher rate of depression. In the order of 40 to 50% of people with chronic and persistent pain have significant mood disorder. So this is the bi-directional, they're risk factors for each other. The implication is then what happens in opioid use. We know on those with opioids, if they're at high dose of opioids, they're more likely to have a mental health diagnosis. And so if I see people on high doses of opioids with chronic pain, I should be looking for a mental health diagnosis and be actively managing that. We also know that suicide rates are high in those with chronic pain. It's between two and three times the general population. But if you've got poorly controlled pain and a lot of psychosocial factors, then you're at higher risk of suicide. And they're the group that are also receiving opioids. So that's the second big risk factor that we need to take into account. And then the third implication is how do you actually manage it? And opioids may contribute to the depression. So actually reducing opioids may be part of the management of their depression but also the other agents that you might like to use for mood disorders, such as tricyclics uh, and SNRI antidepressants, have a role in pain management as well as uh, depression and mood management. So these are the implications in a practical sense. So there's a lot of crossover, and it's hardly surprising then that we do see the use of opiate analgesics, benzodiazepines, quetiapine, Z drugs in the same patient fairly frequently, in spite of what the guidelines might say. Um, and with all the best will in the world. Yvonne, starting with you and, and then Malcolm, realistically, how would you manage a patient? This, so that you've got a patient who's needing higher and higher doses, say, of oxycontin, and they're taking Valium maybe a couple of times a day or when they're feeling anxious. How do you start that conversation with that person? So, Yvonne, you first. Usually I start by talking to them that I'm worried about their safety and that these combinations of medications... Uh, can often be unsafe and so let's rationalise them and see how they respond to that and sometimes you have to go quite slowly with them if you can see that they're getting terribly alarmed about you wanting to change the regimen and so there needs to be more discussion around why it's unsafe and how we can get you feeling better if we rationalise these medications and have you on as few 
as possible. Mm. So simplify first. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what about you, Malcolm? So from my perspective, I, I try to reconceptualise their pain and their experience. And for that, I need to know a bit more about them and their, their early childhood development and the risk factors that led to the acute onset of pain. And then why did it then become a chronic disabling condition with opioids? So it can be re-explained to the patient and then they can reconceptualise it as well as their other healthcare practitioners so that a better strategy, multi-dimensional strategy, can be implemented for better pain management um, with the safety in mind. Mm. So Fergal, in general practice, you're treating the whole patient. Is this patient just too complex? Is it, you know, is it fair enough to say, I need to refer this person on or is it really something that you should be able to manage in general practice? So I think we've heard that everyone else in this podcast is also treating the whole patient, and that's the message that is coming through. Um, secondly, we can't avoid complexity in general practice. So it can be a bit daunting when, when one is first confronted with this kind of problem, but you're not alone. There is help and avail- uh, available to you. There is at least telephone advice, and there are services that you can go to to get secondary care advice as you're waiting for a referral. And, and it's, I think it's important to mention that the, the management of these patients is not just about how, how one writes a prescription. You know, uh, you mentioned, Malcolm, multimodal interventions. The access to physiotherapy and uh, psychology is available even in relatively rural and remote areas. So start the ball rolling, and that's, that's the message that I would give to my colleagues. Mm, okay. There are things that you can do whilst you're waiting for a patient to be seen by a specialist. Yes, and, and things that are quite productive in, in that period. Mm, indeed, yes. Yeah. That's good. So then there are patients, of course, who already have opiate use disorder as well as mental health condition, which we've, we've flagged. And they're at higher risk, again, of adverse outcomes from their medication, including um, high risk of suicide, as you flagged. Fergal, if you saw in script a record that a patient you've been treating for a while for pain and anxiety is sourcing prescriptions from another provider... First of all, how do you feel? Well, it's only natural to feel a little bit affronted, um, but one has to minimise the injured pride. You know, it's not about you, it's about the patient. Uh, You have to accept that this patient is presenting to you with a chronic relapsing disorder. And abandonment is not the treatment of this chronic relapsing disorder. So saying you know, please leave, I'm not going to look after you anymore. It's not the right thing to do on on moral and ethical uh, levels. So having got over that injured pride, then I think for me the next step would be to understand the risks associated with that patient, both the the pharmacological risks as per safe script, the physical comorbidity risks, and also the risks of addiction. And I think at that point a discussion on substance use disorder and whether or not it's it's a possible diagnosis, that needs to be had as well. Having made that risk assessment, then I think a harm minimization plan needs to be tailored to the patient. There are various things that one can do in that harm minimization plan to then progress that patient's care. And that plan may or may not involve pharmacotherapy. I think what you're describing there is very much a continuation of management of a patient, yes. maybe thinking about discharging that patient at some point if you need to, to another part of the system for care or or sharing care perhaps I, with another I, part of the system. I prefer the phrase sharing care. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think deep GPs are ever in the position of discharging their patients. Okay. Hospital physicians can discharge a patient back to the care of their GP. 
But, but I really, don't think GPs can discharge their patients. Your, your, your code of practice really is looking at continuity of care for yes. that person. Yes. Yeah. I like also that concept that you talk about, a, a chronic relapsing condition. And I think when we're talking about opiate use disorder, that's really important that we do think about a chronic condition. And I guess that brings us to the medication-assisted treatment for opioid disorder. It's been shown to significantly improve patient safety over and above other treatments, and it should be considered for patients at high risk. Yvonne, I think you prefer to call it opioid agonist treatment. Mm -hmm. How do you go about starting um, someone on opioid agonist treatment? Well, firstly, I try to find out how they feel about it and what they know about it, because many people will have preconceived ideas about, about what it actually is and what it does. Uh, you'll hear terms like liquid cuffs and things like that. So I ask them if they've heard of it and what they think about it. And then from there I can work out what the best way to talk about it is. Sometimes we need to dispel those myths. So people are thinking that it really it's going to limit their experience of life or yep. make them feel, feel less. Yes, or you're saying I'm an addict. I'm not an addict, etc., etc. So, uh, talking through with them and just finding out where they're at in terms of what they know about um, opioid agonist treatment. And yes, we we do call it agonist treatment because the other term, the traditional term, has been substitution treatment. But we actually find that's quite stigmatising and it's a misconception that you're just substituting one drug for another. And if patients pick up that notion, then there's fair bit of judgment and stigma associated with that. So we talk about how um, neuroadaptation has occurred and that opioid agonist treatment is about addressing that neuroadaptation so that they can get on with life and do the things that they want to do and not be uh, you know, held back by their pain condition and their medication regimen. So your body's got used to this treatment so we're needing to manage that exactly that situation yeah. now so that you feel more comfortable you feel better and you can get on and do the things that you want to do in life and what about the practical steps that you take then so often we will um, after that conversation give them some reading material to go away and think about it first uh, and then at subsequent visits we start the, the treatment mm -hmm. and do you agree on a therapeutic goal at some point with the patient or is that something that you have I guess in your mind? Certainly in, in our mind uh, it depends on the individual some people want to know well, where will this end and others just want to take it one step at a time so it's really on a case-by-case -case basis but the main message is that the the main treatment goal in in the first instance is to be feeling physically better not having these peaks and troughs with the um, non OAT treatment. Mm. And being safe, presumably, as exactly. well. Exactly, yes. yes. Fergal, what would you say to general practitioners who aren't convinced they could manage um, medication-assisted treatment of opioid disorder in general practice? Um, what are the opportunities there? It's not something you might do often, so you might need some help. So firstly, I would say that uh, opioid agonist therapy is actually part of the remit of general practice. It should be considered as such. In Victoria, at least, uh, general practitioners have the right to prescribe for five patients using a particular type of OAT, without, and they can do that without any uh, specialist training. However, the third thing is to say that um, you're not alone. There are lots of uh, experts out there, and there are lots of resources out there to help you actually get started on your journey into 
prescribing for for these patients. And that kind of help can involve um, access to experts, including the ECHO project. I think Yvonne might want to speak a bit about ECHO. The pharmacotherapy area-based networks are available to provide advice and support. And also the RACGP not only has it uh, produced written documentation to help you through this conundrum, but it also provides training to actually become a pharmacotherapy prescriber. So you're not alone, and you should consider it as part of your core business. And I think there's also a, a, a quick upskill on the um, Department of Health and Human yeah. Services website for buprenorphine in particular. Yeah. So if you're interested in using buprenorphine, you, you can use that as I think as a really helpful way to get started. Yvonne, do you want to tell us about ECHO? So ECHO is a project that started in the United States and essentially it's a community of practice that's online for uh, health professionals in opioid prescribing and so it runs on a Wednesday morning uh, before people start work, so very early, but uh, cases are presented by people who are either uh, at the hub or at what we call spokes, so in rural and regional Victoria and they're de-identified cases but they provide an opportunity to talk together as a group about how do we go about managing this particular person and their complex comorbidities that they might have. Okay, great resource. Yeah, it's open to anybody who's interested in just listening to how people approach these sorts of quite complicated management issues Mm. at times. But we don't all live in Melbourne so we can use things online or use other uh, telecommunications. Uh, but Malcolm, you also practice in, in Ballarat. Did for, so, for, yes. For part of, which is yes. not so far out of town, but still no, yeah, but a, a rural area. Yes. How, how do you find the referral services there and what, what other strategies do you need to put in place? So in addition to Ballarat region, you, you go further out into that northwest Victoria, for example, and so the suggestion and recommendation is develop links and associations and learn from your colleagues in that sort of referral pathway. There are health pathways to do local referrals, but there are also secondary pathways down into the tertiary services in the city. Now, most of them have a rapid access pathway or a telephone consultation approach or telehealth services. So a bit like the Project ECHO concept of a hub and spoke model, if you have a complex patient you should be able to develop the links to the secondary and tertiary services to provide support and, if need be, in-person assessment. The and other aspect... If you haven't done that before, you would go and look at your PHN health I pathway? I think so. I think so, in the health pathway. And that, and that will give you the links to the local services. And if they cannot help, then, then it's the next one along. Um, what the advantage of, of having those relationships is you develop your own team in the community. And so the I do telehealth into both Madura and then Hamilton region. And what we've found is, is that over five years, we've got to upskill staff members of exercise physiologists, psychologists, nursing and GPs. So they're essentially providing quality services in the community that the patients appreciate. They've learnt over time. They don't participate in every case, but they, they learn by the interaction that we have and so the referrals that we get now are much higher quality and need consultation rather than full-on hands-on management. Mm. And, and those people are having service provided really conveniently near home. Correct. They're more likely to come on Correct. more often. Yeah. And so for, for this cohort in Victoria of high-dose opiates, high level of distress, we know there's a higher proportion of those in 
rural and outer urban areas where the service provision is leased and their engagement is the, is the big crucial issue. So getting them into Melbourne is going to be near impossible but having some linkages and development over time of both staff but also engagement with the patient works best. Mm, that's a really good service. And and Fergal, for you in general practice, and, and Kui Rup is not exactly the bush, but it is the urban fringe, or a bit beyond the urban fringe of Melbourne. How, how do you find accessing services? Um, I'm very lucky. I've got the the uh, involvement with ECHO that's already been mentioned. But you know, in my area, the pharmacotherapy area-based network is very supportive, and there are networks that cover the entire of Victoria. So. It's about accessing or identifying people, key people within those networks that are able to start your, the, the development of your personal network of expertise. Because you don't necessarily have to know everything, you just have to know who to call. And, and building that team over time seems yeah. like a, a really good strategy because you'll all get to know each other and trust each other and mm. understand each other's work mm. practices. Yeah. So, so yeah, Malcolm, coming to you, um, there are... GP and clinical advisors in the community who are available. available. Um, yep. How can we use those yep. and can you tell me a bit more about them? So we know we've had an established drug and alcohol consultation service by telephone. With the Safe Script initiative there's been development of GP champions specifically in the rural areas where we've got the clinical need and so those champions have had additional training through both drug and alcohol and pain services and are there to provide leadership to other GPs who may have issues and are part of a consultative advisory service as part of pain, consultative advisory service as part of the Safe Script Initiative. And I think they will also know the pathways and they know the connections and can promote and encourage that staff development in the local regions and their linkages to the specialist services. So it sounds like a great way to get started if I you're think not it quite is. sure where I else think to it start. Is. And, and this is what we find over time is their input over time gives confidence to other practitioners to broaden the depth of knowledge and to broaden the skill set that their confidence and their, their service delivery model can can grow rather than it being reliant on oh, there's a very long wait list, so I won't even bother referring to a tertiary service and I won't bother managing them. We're actually encouraging engagement in, in knowing about these issues and actively managing them. Yes, as, as Fergal said earlier, get the ball rolling Correct. because there's, there's no need to wait. There's the good things you can be yep. doing yep. immediately. Yep. Okay. Can I just say one more thing about that? So there are, to my knowledge, there are 12 GP clinical advisors and they cover the entire Victoria and they, I think they're mapped out to the Pabin Networks. Uh, and the number for accessing their service is the same as the DACAS telephone hotline, which is 1800-812-804. That's right, and, and we give the number at the, the end yeah. of the podcast. That's good. So thank you all very much. Patients with mental health conditions are more predisposed to chronic pain and vice versa. If a patient with a mental health condition has a coexisting opioid use disorder, they are at increased risk yet again. Medication-assisted treatment of opioid dependence should be considered for these patients and SafeScript can help monitor their safety and support care by two or more health professionals. Good medical practice involves ensuring that appropriate continuity of care is provided for all patients. Abruptly discharging a patient from your care or stopping treatment in patients who have been taking high-risk medications over a long period of time may be contrary to patient safety. As we have learned in today's podcast, patients with complex comorbidities can continue to be safely and appropriately cared for in the primary care setting, and safe management of these patients is well within the skill set of GPs. There were three key points for me today. 
it's important to understand the relationship between chronic pain and mental health conditions as this can help guide therapy. Patients with mental health conditions are at higher risk of harms from opioid analgesics and patients with coexisting opioid use disorder and a mental health condition really should be considered for medication-assisted treatment of dependence because they have much better outcomes when this is the case. More information and resources to support your management of chronic pain and mental health can be found in the SafeScript online training modules and your local PHN SafeScript health pathways. The SafeScript GP Clinical Advisory Service provides peer-to-peer advice to GPs managing patients with complex pain, addiction or mental health needs and they can be contacted on 1800 812 804. Links to these resources can be found at the Department of Health website www.health.vic.gov.au forward slash SafeScript. Thank you for listening today. Thanks to our guests, Yvonne Bonomo, Malcolm Hogg and Fergal Armstrong. Our next podcast will look closely at patient safety and using benzodiazepines. I hope you can join me.